And welcome to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. I'm Bart Gregory, along with Charlie Winfield. Well, this week we've got a great show for you. Adam Frazier, leadoff man for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and Wes Ray, two big cogs in the wheel of that 2013 national runner-up team. And then later in the show, we're going to talk with former assistant coach Steve Smith, was a pitching coach at Mississippi State, was a big recruiter on that uh, Ron Polk staff in the early 1990s and put together the top-ranked recruiting class in the country in 1994. Guys that you really recall, Eric DeBose, Richard Lee, so many guys on that team that went on to go to the College World Series in 1997 and 1998. Charlie, hey, man, I tell you what, looking back at last week, Janet Marie Smith talking about building Camden Yards, Jackson, Mississippi native, Mississippi State alum, and just going back and listening to that interview. I've listened to it a couple of times. Just the urban development and how that really transcended ballparks in America when you start talking about architects in Major League Baseball, you have to start with her. Yeah, you absolutely do. And the thing that is interesting to me is you really get the understanding that this is a person who wasn't just designing a stadium for the sake of having a stadium. It was somebody designing a stadium with an understanding of the need for it to fit within the overall context of the entire neighborhood. She was building part of a city, something that unified areas, not just some big set of concrete sitting out in the middle. Camden Yards is still one of my favorite ballparks, and that's the thing. It's It was built in the early 1990s. I mean, it's been there almost 30 years now, and we start talking about how it still reminds you of a new ballpark. That was the ballpark that really transcended everything in Major League Baseball, and then you look at Coors Field in Colorado, and so many of these ballparks really took the same characteristics What's your favorite ballpark? I mean, is it is it Yankee Stadium? <laughs> of course. The new one or the old one? Yes. <laughs> if the Yankees are there, it's got to be the best. So I'll disqualify them for sake of the discussion. I think my favorite experience today, I hate saying this. I absolutely hate saying this. I think going to Fenway, though, yeah. after it has been redone, Jan Marie Smith, obviously the lead architect in that, it's phenomenal. Well, and that takes on two different areas that Janet Marie Smith has worked with. One is building from the ground up with Camden Yards, but also some of these old ballparks. Of course, I'm a Cubs fan. I love Wrigley Field. But the thing that the Cubs have been able to do, and then with Janet Marie Smith and Fenway, is you take these old ballparks and then you add the new amenities to it, whether it be seats on top of the Green Monster. And now you go to Dodger Stadium, and that's where she's been working for the last eight years. They were supposed to open that new Dodger Stadium entrance out in center field a couple of weeks ago, and they're still waiting to do that. But it's phenomenal as well. And so they kept the same old ballpark feel inside, but it's just the new amenities that go with it. I think of Wrigley Field, and I think of all the things they've done underneath Fenway. They've done that as well. AT&T Ballpark out in San Francisco that really reminds you a lot of Camden Yards. It has so many different sight lines, so many different places to watch a game. It really reminds me a lot of what we've just built here. And you mentioned you know, Janet Marie Smith and building that new ballpark. And she said last week she worked with Populous, what is now Populous. It was HOK back in the day out of Kansas City. And Populous helped her with 
Camden Yards, and Populous was the architect for Duty Noble Field, you see just how something that happened 30 years ago with steel, with brick facade, how it lives on today. And it's kind of fun to say, put in your back pocket, that the person that started it all was a Mississippi State person. Yeah, not only started it all, but has perpetuated it. I mean, she has been the real force behind stadium architecture. Okay, here's a question. If you could go back and go to any of the old ballparks, Polo Grounds, Ebbets Field, I mean, just you're a, you're a historian in baseball. Looking around, is there anywhere that you really wish you could have seen any kind of game? I wish I could have gone to Ebbets Field just because of the fact that it's sitting there in Brooklyn, sitting there in the middle of a, a busy area. Of course, that's where the name the Dodgers came from, is that you used to have to dodge the trolleys to get into Ebbets Field. They were originally the trolley Dodgers, and so originally thought of as the trolley Dodgers in that way. And so I think I would like to go back to the New York area and go to Ebbets Field. I think I would say the same thing. And you, you listen to Janet Marie Smith talking about the urbanization of ballparks. That's what the owners in Baltimore really wanted, is they wanted that feel of a ballpark in the middle of the city. And at that time, in the early 1990s, after you had those ballparks being built in the 1980s in the suburbs of America, that was something different. It was something new. It was kind of the the old new, so to speak. So later today, we'll talk to Adam Frazier, Wes Ray, two guys that were big in 2013. Here's the thing that I remember about those guys, and we talk about big games in that 2013 season. I think of the two games in Charlottesville, Virginia, Adam Frazier went six for six, and it really set the tone in game one. And if you think Virginia had probably one of the best teams in the country, I think they were the three national seed that year, heavy left-handed hitters. Butch Thompson talked a couple of weeks ago about Chad Gerardo and really silencing that left-handed part of the order. And then Wes Ray, we came out and won that first game. Adam really set the table. Then in game two, Virginia was all hyped up, and then Wes Ray early hit that massive bomb, and it really just popped the balloon. Uh-oh, here we go again. And so those two guys, we talked about Gerardo a couple of weeks ago, but on the offensive side, Wes Ray, Adam Frazier, two guys that were very, very big in that 13 Super Regional. They were. The thing that I remember about both those guys are probably the things they did away from the field just as much. You think about a Wes Ray, I remember coming back from Virginia the bus rolls in after midnight. It's late. There's a crowd of people there. My son still has a picture in his room with Wes Ray getting off the bus that day. He didn't know why it was so late getting in because we got to the airport. We're so excited. We're going to Omaha, and they had to send a new plane. The plane had deployed that plastic, the airbag or whatever, the, the slide the down. The slide down. Yeah, the slide, so they had to send us a new plane when it landed. The, the first one, it landed, and the slide came out. And so they had to send us a new plane, and we had to wait in the terminal in Charlottesville. Everybody's texting and tweeting, and we had to wait for like three hours. And I kid you not, I kid you not, we're sitting in that small little terminal off in an off room, and I looked over there, and these guys, 18 to 22-year-old guys, okay, had just won a Super Regional. And do you know what game they are playing in the dark? I kid you not. Duck, duck, goose. I promise you. That was one of the funniest things I think I've ever seen in my life. When I think of Adam Frazier, I think of hard work. Hard work off the field, on the field. So many people talk about him offensively, and we just mentioned going six for six. 
Here's the thing I think of Adam Frazier is how hard he worked with his fast hands at turning a double play. And he and Pirtle in 2013 probably made up the best double play combination in the history of Mississippi State baseball. Led the nation in double plays that year. But working on the little things, and that's one of the things I try to tell my son. It's not about swinging a bat or fielding a ground ball. It's the little things, but the ability to turn a double play. And how many times do we have to have a big double play and we got them? Because we had ground ball pitchers. But little things turn into big things and how hard he worked at the little things. And that's one of the reasons he's still playing baseball today. The thing that I like about Adam Frazier, as you talk about all that hard work, is he wasn't telling you how hard he was working. That's continuing to go through in the major leagues now. He was showing you how hard he's working. You can't get on Twitter today. You can't get on Facebook without somebody posting a video that they worked out today, that they ran today, that they lifted weights today. Well, you know what? You're supposed to. I love the athletes like Adam Frazier. You know, the thing about Adam Frazier is I don't think there's a single ounce of big timing you in either one of these guys, in Wes Ray or Adam Frazier. And these two guys were rock stars in 2013 among Mississippi State fans, and they were both the same people the day they left is the day they got here. And Adam Frazier, one of those guys, he wasn't seeking attention. He wasn't seeking glory. Look at me, all this stuff I'm doing. You just saw it because he kept getting better and better and better. Let's talk about Wes Ray. You know, the Cape Cod League announced earlier this week that they're canceling their summer season in the Cape Cod League. And I think of a guy like Wes Ray. Okay, what does that mean for a guy like Wes Ray? Wes Ray, when he came to Mississippi State, if I'm doing a scouting report on Wes Ray, I'm thinking slider, breaking ball away because he is going to chase that pitch. And his ability to spit on that pitch when he was a sophomore, junior, senior made him such a better player. And he went off and he worked and realized what his, what his strike zone was. And that's one of the things that you're – you're going to lack in seeing is without the summer leagues, without the Cape Cod League, is the guys that go off and work. People ask all the time, you know, what's the big thing about it? It's about repetition. And Wes Ray couldn't have learned his strike zone without repetition. And there's another guy who worked very, very hard at what his strike zone was. Because let me tell you something, Charlie. He had a lot bigger strike zone to deal with than Adam Frazier. And finding out what his strike zone was and working with that, he worked hard to get that. And, that, and, and like you said, good guys off the field. Those guys always talked about fishing and hunting. I remember sitting in a dugout in Charlottesville, and they had this picture of this alligator they had caught out at the refuge. And Wes was texting to everybody. No, they didn't catch it. The Forestry Service had caught the alligator. But anyway, I mean, those guys were worried about hunting and fishing and just having a good time off the field. But, man, I tell you what, when they stepped between the lines, they came ready to play every single day. I'll add to this on Adam Frazier. When we think back in Mississippi State history, Clark and Palmero had those kind of iconic swings. You'll always remember Jake Mangum's swing. Adam Frazier had one of the prettiest swings that's ever come through Duty Noble Field. That left-handed swing was just beautiful. Absolutely. And then later in the show, as we said, we'll talk to Steve Smith, who was the head coach at Baylor. He went over to Auburn, was over there as a pitching coach for three years with Butch Thompson, now in his first season as the head coach at Tennessee Tech, was a big part of those 1990 teams. 
here in Starkville. So a great loaded show for you this week here on Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Mark Gregory, Charlie Winfield, joined now by a couple of guys that enjoyed a lot of success at Mississippi State, Adam Frazier and Wes Ray. Guys, I appreciate you joining this afternoon and talk a little bit about baseball when you were here in Starkville. Yeah, thanks for having us. Adam, we'll start with you. You know, Coming in, we talked to Lane Burroughs and Butch Thompson a couple of weeks ago. We had both those guys on at the same time. And they were talking about your recruitment. They kept coming back to one of the things that they really liked about Adam Frazier was that blue-collar mentality. Looking back at your time at Mississippi State, and we'll ask Wes the same question as well, what are the things in the baseball that you really learned early on in your career that's helping you today, whether it be in baseball or in life? Oh, tough question. Really just put my head down and, and go to work. Now, I've never really been the big prospect kind of guy. Uh, like I listened to y'all's conversation the other day with, with Coach Burroughs and Coach Thompson, and they recruited me pretty hard before they finally threw me an offer. So it was like uh, I've always been the kind of guy to have to prove myself. So that's really all I've done is put my head down and work hard, and, and the rest will take care of itself. So that's probably the thing I learned uh, you know, early on. That that's what I have to do to have some success. Well, Wes, I remember when you were a high school football player, and everybody talked about that every time we were on TV. Uh, he was a four-star offensive guard at Harrison Central High School, and all of a sudden he's going to be a baseball guy. Looking back, when was that moment that you decided and you said, hey, I'm going to put the pads and the football helmet up, and I'm going to try to hit a baseball for a living? Man, that was honestly – that was not a very difficult decision for me. I think the reporters made it out to seem like it was this big, drawn-out deal, you know. But, I mean, I think I was ready to play baseball from the get-go. I mean, I love football and, and loved entertaining my time playing football and the recruiting process. But I think the whole time, deep down, I knew that, you know, baseball was going to be it for me. I was just ready for a baseball coach to commit to me as a baseball player and not try to piggyback the football scholarship and – Coach Cohen and Butch and, and Coach Burroughs and all those guys, you know, believed in me to be a baseball player, and that's kind of what brought me to Mississippi State. Wes, you make that point. So when you were looking at Mississippi State, did you ever give any thought to football, or was coming to Mississippi State basically a chance to get away from the idea of playing football and be solely a baseball player? Well, actually, it kind of put the heat back on me because then, you know, Coach Mullen was there, and he was recruiting me the whole time, and it offered me. And, you know, he he kind of kept recruiting me the whole time because after I signed my national letter of intent for baseball, he could still recruit me, but he was the only coach who was able to still recruit me because I was going to school there. So he kind of stayed on me pretty hard until I finally got there in the fall and, and told him, you know, I'm, I'm in this for baseball. And um, it kind of it died down after that. So I was 100% dedicated to baseball from as soon as I made that decision talking with Wes Ray and Adam Frazier and Charlie here's the thing when I look back at that 2013 season so many people talk about what happened in the College World Series and about the regional here in Starkville I think back to those two games we played in Charlottesville Virginia 
and these two guys right here. Adam, what you went six for six in one game. Wes, you hit the big home run in game two. But, but Adam, looking back over your career, hitting in the leadoff spot, then compared to your junior year at Mississippi State on until now, one of the things that I know you were trying to work on so much was changing your approach and not being as overly aggressive at the plate, and you continually got better as a leadoff guy. When did it really click for you mentally as far as I'm going to get on base any way possible? Because I tell you what, those last couple of years you were here, every time you came to the plate and had to get on base, it seemed like you got on base. Uh, yeah, I wish we could go back to Charlottesville. That was a fun time. I don't think that uh, that ball that West hit still hasn't landed but um that's really i guess something i always pride myself on doing when i got to the plate was not striking out and that was where i got myself in trouble like you're talking about with that over aggressiveness so really i guess you know over time you start hitting weak ground ball after weak ground ball to uh, second base and first baseman and you, you finally say all right screw this i'm gonna make them come to me and then over time it gets better and better and that's really what i just tried to do but it took a while before i got to that point and, and then to have some success doing it Wes, you look at the year you had in 2012, you had some ups and downs, and all of a sudden you come back in 2013, that big breakout year offensively, kind of an anchor over at first base as well. What was the change in approach, if anything, that allowed you to go from kind of those ups and downs to all of a sudden being a a fixture in the order? I just think it was simplifying things. I mean, I I feel like there was, you know, a few things mechanically that we worked on throughout the whole process, but finally I just realized, you know, I don't have to have all this extra movement at the plate to produce power. I mean, just try to simplify. And, and you know, having guys on base in front of me helped a lot. I mean, <laughs> you got Brazy, Detz, Hunter, Hurdle in front of me. I had a lot of opportunities to come through with a lot of pressure on those guys. So, you know, I kind of contribute that to both of those things. Talking with Adam Frazier and Wes Ray. And, guys, when I look back to that 2013 season – and I start thinking about all those guys and so much success on the field. But, man, the thing that I remembered is how close you guys were. And it seemed like you guys enjoyed being around each other. We couldn't get to the ballpark without a story about Hunter trying to catch an alligator over in the Tom Bigby or, or trying to swing a possum somewhere. But it, it's it's amazing how hunting and fishing, you know, we laugh about it all the time. I'm a big hunter. I like to turkey hunt like you, Wes, and Adam. But the thing about doing things off the field, it was almost like that team really grew so close. And that's one of the things I remember about that team is just how close you guys were. No doubt. I just feel like when they put that class together, it was something where we just we had a lot of you know mutual friends and mutual teammates and mutual competitors, and we played against each other a lot growing up. So kind of had that mentality that you know we kind of thought that class was going to turn things around and you know knowing everybody from little league to travel ball and then we kind of all meet and start we'll kind of added a little special relationship to that group for sure adam not even from mississippi and you come over here and it was almost like everything clicked i mean i just think about all you guys getting together and and, and going out and doing so many different things off the field as far as hunting and fishing and then getting to the ballpark and working hard. It seemed like there were so many good players on that team. You always hear that term, iron sharpens iron, and we heard it plenty from Lane Burroughs and Butch Thompson in those pregame meetings. But it seemed like none of you guys wanted to be outworked, and you really worked hard. Oh, yeah. But that's what happens when you have a lot of great talent um, on the same team is 
you know, you better keep working because, you know, the next guy right behind you is, is pushing you and he's ready to take your spot. But, yeah, we, uh, I mean, I can't remember a time that where we, you know, we're, we weren't all together as a group um, off the field. It was, uh, you know, when as soon as we left practice, we were all going to get together and do something else, and whether it be hunting and fishing or have a little team get together and grill out somewhere. We still have group texts um, to this day where we're all in and, you know, giving each other some grief about everything we do. But um, that not just that 2010 class, but it was the junior college editions that ended up coming in a year or two later with Dets and Pirtle and, and all those guys that, and Amirati, um, you know, we we all feel real close now. And that just kind of solidified the, the group we had and, and brought us even more together. Guys, one of the stories that we think back about John Cohen early in his career as Mississippi State's head coach was kind of the strict approach. There was not a lot of facial hair, not a lot of, at least visibly from the stands, not a lot of fun being had in terms of, you know, pranks and that type thing. It looked like somewhere during that 2013 season, things kind of started to loosen up a little bit, and you guys started having more fun playing baseball. Is there anything to that, or is that just our perception from the stands? I think that definitely happened, but I think it happened because we were winning a lot of ball games. Um, you know, when uh, we kind of – that was – I feel like he had a lot of pride in our class and a lot of respect for us, and, you know, he kind of let us run our own show. And um, so – I respect him for allowing us to play that way, and I feel like it helped us a lot, no doubt. Yeah, that's like, uh, like what I said. Uh, you know, right, Wes hit it right on the head. You know, when we start winning some ball games, he'll loosen up, let you do what you want to do, and we proved that we could do that. Um, we, you know, we were mature enough to go have some fun and win some ball games and play together as a team. And you know, it goes back to just pushing each other to the iron sharpen iron kind of thing. It's we can go have all this fun and grow your hair out, whatever it may be, but you're not winning then uh we'll have to tighten something up but we kind of police that ourselves pretty good once cohen you know gave us that key to take over and, and drive our own ship so uh yeah like it like west said respect them a lot for letting us do that that's when we kind of took off guys when you play at mississippi state it's a little bit different it's a little bit different playing here than a lot of other places and both of you guys had opportunities of going somewhere else and when I look back to 2013 and I think of being in Omaha and then winning the first three games and we won the game on Friday and then would not play again until Monday, it was almost like a cavalry came to the hotel at the Doubletree in downtown Omaha. And every single day, well, Saturday and Sunday and then Monday and Tuesday, it seemed like every time you go to practice, every time you go to a meal, there's going to be a line of 40, 50 people at the hotel wanting an autograph, wanting a picture. I look back to that and just seeing you guys and how you handled that. And, and Adam, you first. You're now with the Pittsburgh Pirates, and I know that you, you travel around, and I know you guys have great fans in Pittsburgh. To this day, have you witnessed anything that compares to those four days in Omaha? No, not at all. I mean, I, I mean that's why you come to Mississippi State, though, is because of that family atmosphere and tradition and everything that comes with it. Is, uh, and that's why, you know, an 18-year-old high school kid wants to come play baseball at Mississippi State and then feel so proud 
to be able to do that and then to win some games to get this for the fans to show you that kind of support and love is, is very humbling and um, unbelievable but yeah it's like I'm, you know like you said playing the major leagues you you uh, you have the great fan base and everything like that but you still it's nothing compared to those few days in Omaha or even those couple of years playing ball here and I still feel bad losing those last couple of games in Omaha just because we had 30,000 people out there in maroon and white we couldn't get it done for them, so that was pretty tough for us. But yeah, nothing compares to you know Mississippi State family and support. Yeah, the one thing I remember is just before Game One of the National Championship, uh, our fans standing outside the stadium. They're taking BP before anybody's even in the stadium, and they get the maroon and white chant going. And you can just hear it from outside the stadium. It's something I don't think I'll ever forget. And then. You know, running to first base and, and throwing ground balls around the infield, the first base coach, you know, comes and shakes my hand and was literally just amazed and saying, Y'all, you know, your home game is just crazy. This is the wildest thing I've ever seen. And, you know, just people were just blown away by our fan base. And I think that rings true still today. And it's just growing and getting bigger and bigger. And, you know, I think that just says a lot about Mississippi State baseball in general and, you know, it's just what we bring to baseball fields, nothing like nothing else in the SEC, the country. Guys, we appreciate you joining us. Hey, we made it through this whole thing, and we never made fun of Hunter Renfro, which is very surprising, to be honest with you. Guys, <laughs> we know you're doing well. You guys stay safe, and it's always great to talk with you. You guys, too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Bart. Yeah, Charlie. I appreciate it, guys. I enjoyed it. Thank you all for doing what you're doing, supporting Mississippi State. Man, yeah, thank you all for doing this. Well, old Wes Ray, old Adam Frazier. Have they hung up? Okay, they have. So I'll say this. Man, I miss those guys. <laughs> Man, that was a great group, not only because they won a lot of games, but they were the perfect example of having a good time off the field but had that cutthroat mentality when they stepped across the lines. And this look back at Bulldog history has been brought to you by our friends at Country Pleasing Sausage. Well, Charlie and I get texts and tweets almost daily from all of you out there telling us what you're putting on the grill. We had a big crawfish boil the other day, and one of the first things we had to have was some of that original from Country Pleasing. If you're putting some steaks on the grill, just a few pieces of that pineapple pork on there goes great with those ribeyes. And if you want some appetizers before you eat, just put a little jalapeno cheddar on that meat and cheese tray. You just can't beat the quality. Made in Florence, Mississippi, their storefront is open every day except Sunday. And if you're grilling out, you have to go by and get some of their meats. People will think you're the grilling genius. So when we come back, we'll talk to former pitching coach Steve Smith, who was here from 1990 to 1994 and was the man behind the top-ranked recruiting class in the country in 1994. So looking forward to hearing from Coach Smith. Appreciate you hanging out with us on Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. It's time now for our guest line segment, brought to you each week by our good friends at Heartland Catfish. Heartland, producing the finest farm-raised catfish in America. Boy, you talk about farm-to-table. They take it straight from the farm ponds. They process it and get it right to you so you can have it for your cookouts or in some of your favorite restaurants. Restaurants like The Ark in Pell City, Alabama is the perfect spot if you're headed between Birmingham and Atlanta. Well, you know you have to watch in Pell City. When you get on that bridge that expands over the Coosa River, 
There's always some blue lights making sure that Charlie's not driving five miles an hour over the speed limit. So you know you have to slow down. Just pull over on the west side of the river on exit 162 and head over to the Ark. Get some of that great catfish. They've got fillets or whole, grilled or fried. And believe me, it's fantastic. That's the Ark in Pell City, Alabama. And they're cooking that great catfish from our friends at Heartland Catfish. And let's go to the Heartland guest line. Former assistant coach Steve Smith here in Startwell from 1990 to 1994. Then went on to really build a national power at Baylor. Spent a couple of years over at Auburn with Butch Thompson. Now the head coach at Tennessee Tech. And coach, we really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. It's, uh, it's a privilege. I always like talking to what I consider to be home folks. Uh, Mississippi is, is home for me. Yeah, Gulfport native. And, Coach, you, you came back. You played at Baylor. And then coming to Mississippi State in 1990 and then through 1994, that first year going to the College World Series, spent five years under Ron Polk. And, Coach, during that five years you spent at Mississippi State, how did the coaching with Ron Polk, how did that prepare you to go back to Baylor and build that national power? <laughs> That's a good question. But, you know, I, I had had, before Coach Polk, I'd had two years also with Mark Johnson, who, you know, I, I consider I consider Coach Johnson and Coach Polk, they're, they're the closest things to brothers that I know that Coach Polk would have. And so when I went to, when I went there, I had been that kid in Gulfport that had always wanted to play for him and never got that opportunity. And so it was such a surreal feeling for me. I'll never forget driving in the first time when one and I went there. It was just, it was one of the weirdest feelings I ever had. I remember the, the, the alumni games when we, you know, when he would do them and I knew who the alums were. Because I had followed those guys, you know, I knew who Jack Lazorko was. Uh, I mean, I'd seen Jack Lazorko pitch against William Carey in Hattiesburg. I, I had followed all of them as a kid, and so to see them and now in the role of an assistant coach, and you know, it was just a really surreal thing. The first two years that I was there, I was number one. Let me just say this about Coach Polk: as organized and efficient as as he is and was the one thing he never really assigned to any coach was the, the role of recruiting coordinator. Uh, he never had, to my knowledge, never did. You know, when I got there, I had been there for a month and I was just, you know, waiting because I coming from A&M, those guys were just beating it every day recruiting. I mean, the guy over there, Jimmy Lawler was just worked it so hard you know, they're trying to catch up with Texas back then. And I get into, I get to Coach Polk, and, and there really was no mention of it. And after about a month, I walked into his office one day. This is probably the first time I ever went uninvited. And I put, I put on his desk, it was, a, it was a list of about five or six kids that were all in the state of Texas that I knew of, that I had in some cases seen, but felt like they were good fits you know potentially for Mississippi State and he looked at that list and um and they looked at me and he said as as only he could do it you know why would they want to come here you know when you know they got Texas they got Texas A&M why in the world would those kids want to come all the way over here 
And I, I looked at him, I said, Coach, I said, these kids, they're all going to high schools in the state of Texas that are football schools that play baseball. Mississippi State is a baseball school that plays football. And you, you, you can imagine, both you guys can, can really think, well, he loved that. And he flat out did. He, he loved it. And he, he looked at me through that list back at me and just said, go get them. And, you know, he was just, he just let me do my thing. You know, the role grew in a couple of years. Joe Hudak left and I got to take over the pitchers. And so those last three years there, I'm coaching what I really love, which was the pitching side of it. And I'm really getting to, to, to take as much rain with the recruiting as I wanted to. And I think I could have done that and never thought a moment about being a head coach because I hadn't. I really had never thought about being a head coach. And had it not been the alma mater uh, and why where my wife was a cheerleader and where we met, I don't think I would have left. I don't think I would have ever left. Uh, and I could have I could have gone to my grave as a coach with, with working for Coach Polk. You mentioned those players from Texas. If you look the year after you left, there is a number – of Texas guys on the roster. David Hooten uh, was a sophomore. <laughs> yeah. Blake Anderson yep. uh, was on there. Scott Tanksley, Ricky Joe Red. You just kind of go through that roster in 95 and 96. There's a lot of Texas guys. Were those guys that you were in on and, and kind of going after? Oh, yeah, all those guys uh, and others in the first group. You know, obviously the, the very first group that was a first-rounder in there named Todd Ritchie who signed, uh, and there was another guy who was more like a fifth or sixth round guy, and Steve Gibraltar, and he signed. But, you know, there were, it kind of opened the door, and, and it continues to this day. I mean, they, you know, I, I still say the particularly North Texas and Northeast Texas, those kids, I mean, and, and also with the ballpark and the stadium the, the way it is right now, it's, it's, to me, it was one of the easiest sales I've ever had. It was one of the easiest places to recruit to that I could have ever imagined. You know, it just, what baseball players want more than anything is fans. And my gosh, uh, there wasn't any place then and nor now that would compete with the passion of Mississippi State people for baseball. It has been documented and talked about many times. I think the, the whole SEC in a lot of ways, owes, owes its baseball to Mississippi State. Talking with uh, Steve Smith, a former assistant coach and pitching coach at Mississippi State. And, Coach, you look back to 1994, the year before you left, and Charlie was talking about the, that roster in 95-96. But in 1994, collegiate baseball said we had the number one ranked recruiting class in the country. Then all of a sudden you look at 1995 – and you start thinking about some of these freshmen. Brad Freeman from Oxford, Mississippi. Dustin Dabbs from Tupelo. You look at Barry Patton, or Richard Lee, or Rob Housewald, uh, Van Johnson, Jeremy Jackson. Just so many guys. You left out You left out the best guy. Oh, that's what I was about to say. And how about uh, going down to Gilberttown, Alabama, to Patrician Academy? What was it like <laughs> the first time you saw Eric DeBose throw that good hammer breaking ball? Eric DeBose was a camper, all right? So the first time any of us saw him was he came to camp. And in those days, uh, that's changed a lot now, but in those days, you could get, and particularly at State, you could get top-shelf, front-line guys through camp, which I really think that's kind of why Pokey never had 
sort of that recruiting coordinator. It was done so much, you know, from his chair right there at camp that going out at that time in that era of baseball wasn't, it just wasn't quite as big as it is now. Now it's huge. But Eric was at camp and, and Eric was a grown man. You know, when he was 18 years old, Eric was a grown man. You know, we, we signed him out of camp. Now, the real the real thing, in my and, and the thing that I, 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 when I got to Baylor, I felt like the, the last gift, my last contribution to Mississippi State was Eric DuBose. Because after, you know, he got drafted in the fifth or sixth round. I remember calling, you know, after the draft and, uh, and his mom got on the phone. And she just started crying. You know, she just, she just started crying. She just, she wanted Eric to, you know, going to Mississippi State had been a dream of his. But we hadn't signed him. We hadn't signed him to a really big scholarship. As you guys wouldn't know, Coach was pretty uh, judicious when it came to handing out money. And all of a sudden, this kid's gone in the fifth or sixth round, and he's going to have a decision to make. And, you know, they, it would cost him some money for him to go to school. And, and I remember just telling her, I said, Mr. Bose, I said, I don't think you should worry about that right now. I said, we'll, we'll be able to figure it out. And so I went down there. I drove down there, and I learned a lot when I got down there. Number one, he's an only child. Uh, number two, every member of the extended family lives within 10 minutes of the house. Number three, dad, uh, you know, I think at that time was uh, operating, co- was in the Coast Guard. He was one of those guys that was on, you know, off seven days on seven. So he was out. And when I went down there at that time, he was gone. And, you know, we were able to improve his scholarship situation. And when I left there that day, I thought there wasn't any amount of money that the, that the Los Angeles Dodgers would be able to sign him for. And that proved to be true. And I, I'm, I've, it's been really cool to see him, you know, even since I've been over to Auburn, I, I, I get to see him more now than ever. And, but I came back in '97, guys. You know, for that regional, I'd been at I'd been at Baylor for three years. We didn't get in in '97. We were really kind of getting. We were starting to get there, and we were close, but we didn't get in. And I came back, brought, brought my wife and, and our boys, both of whom had been born there, and we watched that regional. I know you guys remember it. You had Washington and others. The Washington games, one I remember. Clearly, it was one in which Eric was pitching, and and that whole group out there, Adam Pyatt, the whole bunch of them. That was my those that was my crown jewel, really. That was that that group, and I never got to coach any of them. And so it was fun for me to come back and be able to watch them play. And you know, they lost that game on in that winners bracket to Washington, but then they came back and won the whole thing. That was that was a special time. I'm glad I was able to be a part of it. Some of them I've been able to stay, clo- you know, closer to than others. Uh, I've, I've followed them, but yeah, they were that was a real good group of guys. Talking with Steve Smith, former head coach at Baylor, former pitching coach at Mississippi State, nineteen ninety to nineteen ninety four. You're listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. We're going to come back and we're going to talk to Coach Steve Smith, now the head coach at Tennessee Tech. We'll do that right on the other side of the break. This is Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau, Bart Gregory, Charlie Winfield. 
Let's go back to the phones. Former assistant coach, pitching coach, Steve Smith joins us. Now the head coach at Tennessee Tech. He was here at State 1990-1994. Coach, I'm curious. You come in in 1990. Mississippi State was off the heels of a very successful but disappointing 1989. They basically ran through the league but fell short of going to the College World Series. You come in to an experienced ball club. Bart and I have talked about all the seniors who were back on that team. You've got a senior in Tommy Raffo who had had the big year the year before. It seemed like fifth-year seniors all the way around the outfield. How was it walking into Mississippi State into that experienced team that you came into? Well, according to Everett, it was it was I was blessed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had come from A and M now, and if you guys remember, it was A and M and Mississippi State back in '89, and. If A&M wasn't ranked number one in the country, Mississippi State was. Both of us got beat in our regionals. We went to the final day of the NCAA tournament in College Station with a record of 58-5 and at A&M and ran into Ben McDonald and Russ Springer and Paul Bird and Curtis Laskanek and I don't know who else with the little stubby Bianco behind the dish catching. So when I got to Starkville, I, I was, it was really like I was walking in a very similar you know, situation uh, in that regard. And so, but you, you nailed it. The, the team was so veteran. All three outfielders were 23-year-old fifth-year seniors. The third baseman in Burke Masters was a 23-year-old fifth-year senior at third. Scotty Mitchell at second, 23-year-old fifth-year senior. Raff was a 22-year-old senior at first. The only guys on the field that weren't, you know, that age was John Shave at shortstop, who was a junior. When you had Bobby Reed on the mound, you had a kind of a fourth-year junior because of Tommy John. Then you had Jim Robinson behind the plate. So it it was a team. I talk about it all the time. You know, every year I seem to to be reminded of that team because you just don't see that anymore in baseball. If you've got a bunch of fifth-year seniors on your team now, you're not very good. You know, that that group was, you know, you had John in left, you had David Mitchell in center, and you had Tracy in right. They were all really good players, but the but the high profile guys from the year before had all signed, and I don't know. It was it's the weirdest thing. It's that's why sometimes when you expect you think you should win, you don't, and then other times uh, you do. You guys have you guys I know I've heard Jim Ellis has called a million times on the day that Burke had, and and I still remember what I remember about the last game against Florida State in that regional is, is the line drive Eddie Perez hit back at Bobby. You know, it was, seems like it was about the eighth inning of that game, and maybe we were up by a run or something, and, and Eduardo Perez was their guy, and he smokes a ball. That if Bobby doesn't catch it, he's going to eat it. Six inches either way, he doesn't catch it, and they probably take the lead and maybe win the game. But that's just how those things go, and that's how that team got to Omaha. And Everett did tell me, I, I have to tell you, when we got on the bus to go to the airport right there at the ballpark, I'm getting on it ever just looked at me and he says aren't you glad to finally come someplace that can get you to Omaha <laughs> <laughs> only ever uh, coach uh, we're talking with coach Steve Smith and coach you were there when when you start talking about some of these big arms you talk, start talking about a Eric DeBose but you think back to a BJ Wallace a Carlton Lower a Jay Powell when you see these guys throw and, and you know, hey, this guy can throw hard, this guy has a really good breaking ball, but now in today's age of analytics and how everything has completely changed, from a coaching standpoint, 
how does it differ in the way you handle pitchers, how you handled a Carlton Lower or a Jay Powell compared to now when you handle a guy knowing the analytics behind the game and spin rates? Well, I'll speak to that from the perspective of having coached the pitchers at Auburn the last two years because I think I think that's when I grew the most in in that regard. And just really to see how the league has changed in 25 years, the quality of the arms throughout the SEC is, is just, it's really, really, really good. And the thing that separate, but the thing that does separate the SEC, in my opinion, from most of the other leagues, the Power Five leagues, is the quality of the position players. The thing that the SEC, and, and I, I look back on the three years there, and I'm sure there were some pretty knowledgeable fans back in those days that, that was they were glad when I left because I probably screwed up more games than actually impacted in a good way. Now, the league is not a development league. And at my age, I was then. I was 30 years old, 27, 30, 27 to about 33 is when I was there. And I was pretty young out of pro baseball. And I still look through the lens of player development when it came to pitching. And bless Coach Polk's heart, you know, there wasn't a lot of days he was into player development. It was, it was more about winning than it was player development. But we also, you know, there wasn't any pre- the pressure then wasn't near what it is now. I mean, I mean, you wanted to win, but there really wasn't the pressure on coaches that, that there is in today's game, especially in the SEC. Fans bring accountability to the game. You know, the, the amount of fans you have at State, you know, the beauty of that is no coach has to ever get on a player. No coach has to ever really, I mean, what, what player's not going to run hard? You know, if you don't run hard there, you're not going to, you don't have to worry about the coaches. You've got to deal with the fans. Coach, we thank you for joining us. Before we let you go, I got to ask you one last question. We talk about the power arms, those big, strong guys out of the bullpen now. You coached a guy who didn't throw that hard, but led the league in ERA two of his four seasons in John Harden. Question mm-hmm. Martin and I like to raise can a John Harden still get guys out in today's game? Yeah, he can. And you know what, guys? John Harden struck out 100 guys. Go back and look at the number. With the year, I think it was him and BJ. But we had two guys on the staff there that struck out 100. Golly dog. I mean, but the thing that John could do, his separation between that changeup and his fastball was, I mean, it was 58. The, the changeup was a 58-mile-an-hour changeup. And the fastball was 82. But the amount of separation of those two pitches was, was so big, it just made it really tough. And I loved watching him pitch. I loved, I loved calling his game, you know, when I did. Because John's the kind of guy that he was in a better – it was better for John if, it, if the count was 1-0 than it was 0-1. Because, you know, he could throw the change up in that 1-0 count. And they had a hard time dealing with it because, nobody, you know, at that point, nobody really did that much. Hitters are all sitting fastball. They don't, they don't, that's the other thing about the league today. The hitters do not come off fastball. They just don't. And if you've got a pitch like his pitch was, you can throw it over and over and over again and have success. And you can do it today. If you've got that pitch, you can throw it over and over and over again because these guys are just not going to, they're not going to ever give up hitting the fastball. Coach, we really appreciate you joining us. Good stuff as always. And uh, best wishes to you and your family at Tennessee Tech. Thank you, and, and hello to everybody over there. Tell, tell Jim hello when you see him, and hopefully Everett's listening. Love you, Everett. <laughs>
And that's Steve Smith, who coached at Mississippi State from 1990 to 1994. Charlie, here's the thing, and we saw this with Butch and Lane a couple of weeks ago. It's amazing the memory of these assistant coaches. The recall is incredible. You hear Steve Smith talk about 1990 like it was yesterday. And the ability to pitch John Harden backwards. And Eduardo Perez, he was right. It was the eighth inning. It was a one-run game. And it was indeed a missile. A missile right back at Bobby Reed. If Bobby Reed doesn't get his glove up, we're calling an ambulance. We're either calling an ambulance or the season ends that day. And yeah. you don't go to the College World Series. And all of a sudden, you think about how everything plays out. That Burke Masters home run, not nearly as big a deal if you don't win that regional. Hey, this was a good show. I enjoyed it. Adam and Wes, those guys, man, just great guys off the field, tremendous competitors on the field. And then Steve Smith, all those memories of the early 1990s. It was a good show. Yeah, that was great. So we appreciate you joining us. As always, we're brought to you by our good friends at Farm Bureau. Go with the home team. Get you some rates at favorites.com. And our thanks to our hardworking agents and adjusters in South Mississippi right now who are still dealing with a lot of issues from those tornadoes from a couple of weeks ago. So for Charlie Winfield, I'm Bart Gregory saying so long. You've been listening to Out of Left Field presented by Farm Bureau.